1 Samuel chapter 12, on page 281, the Church Bible. Samuel said to all Israel, I have listened to everything you have said to me and have set a king over you. Now you have a king as your leader. As for me, I am old and grey, and my sons are here with you. I have been your leader from my youth until this day. Here I stand. Testify against me in the presence of the Lord and his anointed. Whose ox have I taken? Whose donkey have I taken? Whom have I cheated? Whom have I oppressed? From whose hand have I accepted a bribe to make me shut my eyes? If I have done any of these things, I will make it right. You have not cheated or oppressed us, they replied. You have not taken anything from anyone's hand. Samuel said to them, The Lord is witness against you, and also his anointed is witness this day, that you have not found anything in my hand. He is witness, they said. Then Samuel said to the people, It is the Lord who appointed Moses and Aaron and brought you and your ancestors up out of Egypt. Now then, stand here, because I am going to confront you with evidence before the Lord as to all the righteous acts performed by the Lord for you and your ancestors. After Jacob entered Egypt, they cried to the Lord for help, and the Lord sent Moses and Aaron, who brought your ancestors out of Egypt and settled them in this place. They forgot the Lord their God. So he sold them into the hands of Sisera, the commander of the army of Hazor, into the hands of the Philistines and the king of Moab, who fought against them. They cried out to the Lord and said, We have sinned, we have forsaken the Lord, and served the Baals and Ashtoreths, but now deliver us from the hands of our enemies, and we will serve you. Then the Lord sent Jerubbabel, Barak, and Jephthah, and Samuel, and he delivered you into the hands of your enemies all around you, so that you lived in safety. But when you saw that Nahash, king of the Ammonites, was moving against you, you said to me, No, we want a king to rule over us, even though the Lord, your God, was your king. Now here is the king you have chosen, and the one you asked for. See, the Lord has set a king over you. If you fear the Lord, and serve and obey him, and do not rebel against his commands, and if you both and the king who reigns over you follow the Lord your God, good. But if you do not obey the Lord, and if you rebel against his commands, his hand will be against you as it was against your ancestors. Now then, stand still and see this great thing the Lord is about to do before your eyes. Is it not the wheat harvest now? I will call on the Lord to send thunder and rain, and you will realize that an evil thing you did in the eyes of the Lord when you asked for a king. Then Samuel called on the Lord, 
And that same day the Lord sent thunder and rain. So all the people stood in awe of the Lord and of Samuel. The people said, all said to Samuel, Pray to the Lord your God for your servants, so that we will not die. For we have added to us other sins, the evil of asking for a king. Do not be afraid, Samuel replied. You have done all this evil, yet do not turn away from the Lord, but serve the Lord with all your heart. Do not turn away after useless idols. They can do you no good, nor can they rescue you, because they are useless. For the sake of his great name, the Lord will not reject his people, because the Lord was pleased to make you his own. As for me, far be it from me that I should sin against the Lord by failing to pray for you, and I will teach you the way that is good and right. But be sure to fear the Lord and serve him faithfully with all your heart. Consider what great things he has done for you. Yet, if you persist in doing evil, both you and your king will perish. Please keep your Bibles open. Now, there's going to be a little uh, session going on behind that screen for our children. They'll learn all the things that we're learning uh, differently. And then they'll come and tell us all that they've learnt when they're finished. Now, what uh, I need to let you know is that uh, when we study the Bible together, uh, it's so easy it, to have questions spring up in your mind, uh, and then you kind of walk, go home confused. We'd hate you to do that, so why don't you uh, just have a, a, a think, if you want to uh, jot a question down, ask later, um, where that sort of friendly gathering uh, you can ask any questions you want uh, or make any comments you want. Now, normally we have a little pad that we let people write questions down with or make notes if they want to. Uh, yeah. And there's a noise going on as well. I guess. Here we go. Let me start by having prayed. Let's... Uh, start by asking a question. Why the history lesson? When you heard the Bible being read, didn't it sound a bit like a big history lesson of what happened to the people of Israel way back in the Bible before any of this lot were around? Why do they need to be told all that? Now we get it. Simon's old. Uh, Sam, Samuel's old. Uh, you find that out in chapter 8, verse 1. Um, and they seem to delight in rubbing it in that he's old. In chapter 8, verse 5, they said to him, You are old, and your sons don't follow your ways. Now appoint a king to lead us, such as all the other nations have. And so, yeah, okay, we've got the point. Sam is old. But isn't this the weirdest retirement speech you've ever heard? Because he goes back not just looking at how things were when he was around, but 
looking at what was going on before he was even born. Now let me ask you this, if you come to our church this evening from somewhere on our estate and you want to find out if there's a God and how he might make sense of your life, how would any of this help you to do that? Wouldn't it be better to come to church and sit down in a room where you can actually hear God speak to you directly? Now that would be a good thing, wouldn't it, you would think? But let me ask you to think again. In England, we say, do you mind if I'm Irish for a minute? That means, do you mind if I make, say something that may not make a lot of sense, but think about it. What I want to say is, if there is a God, shouldn't you be looking for history? By that I mean, that if there is a God, you'd have expected him to have done certain things and for those things to be recorded. Because history shows us that there is a God active in our world if you can look back and see what he has done. So history shows that there is a God. All the other books of religion can dish out what is considered to be good advice. But uh, advice puts the spotlight on you and what you have to do. Whereas history puts the spotlight on God and what he has done, even before you pitched up on the sea. So history is what you need if your prime response to God is going to be trust. You want to know if this God is worth trusting. If he tells you something about the future, well, you want to know if anything's happened in the past to make you want to believe him. Is there history of what he has promised coming true? So a couple of things to read about history that you get from Samuel in this chapter. Um, I'm sorry, I don't know how to stop that. It just is a distraction, isn't it? Uh, it'll, it'll shut soon. Um, as long as it doesn't take a mind of its own and spring back and back and open up again. Now, the two things that Samuel wants to tell you about history is first that history confirms prophecy. In other words, God had told Moses and his people all these things would happen and that's exactly what they found out to be true. Every promise of God was kept. You can go and check. But the other interesting thing about history that you get from this little part of the Bible is not just that history confirms prophecy, but history is prophecy. So what this chapter tells us, that if you, if you check up on what happened in the past, you've got a pretty good idea what will happen in the future if we don't trust it. Why, just look at what happened to the people in the past who didn't. So history will turn out to be not just a kind of look back on the past, it is going to be back to the future. 
because what the history tells us uh, is uh, going to happen uh, all over again if we follow uh, that same course. So Simon is, uh, Samuel is big on history here, and it may be that if you're new from the estate and you want to find out what God is like and you want to know how all this can make sense of your life, then actually these two lessons will help you with that very thing you see. First big lesson that history tells us is that God is very, very righteous. That means he is a specialist at getting it right. And you can check his track record. That's what Samuel wants them to do in uh, verse 7. Uh, he says uh, in verse 7, Now then, stand here, because I'm going to confront you with evidence before the Lord as to all the righteous acts performed by the Lord for you and for your ancestors. So in other words, here is not a God who uh, doles out good advice. He is a great and brilliant God who goes to people who ask him to do things because frankly they are helpless and cannot do anything themselves. And you see that in verse 8. Uh, after Jacob entered Egypt, they cried to the Lord for help and the Lord sent Moses and Aaron who brought your ancestors out of Egypt and settled them in this place. Fantastic one verse summary of the whole of the second book of the Bible called Exodus. Okay? And God did that to people who were uh, completely helpless. God is the one doing all the doing. You might just pick up along the way that just giving people good advice never works because of the problem that we have in verse 9. Verse 9 tells us, but they forgot the Lord their God. And we forget the best lessons, the way they did. But it is God again who takes the action to get them back on track. In verse 10 and verse 11, they cried out to the Lord and said, We've sinned, we've forsaken the Lord, we've served the bears and the asherahs, but now deliver us from the hands of our enemies and we will serve you. And then the Lord said those three judges, and I thought Dorothy did very well. And he delivered you from the hands of all your enemies. Instead, he delivered you from the hands of your enemies. I think in the reading we got uh, delivered you into the hands of your enemies. Uh, that wouldn't have been quite so good. Um, so he delivered them from uh, the enemy's hands. He is the one who delivers. All they do is cry. Now, that's what Samuel wants to tell the people in front of him because they want to do regime change. In other words, they say, we need a new system. We want a king to look after us. Samuel, just in case you hadn't noticed, all the nations around us have got kings. We haven't got a king. We want a king to be like them. We want a new system. So if anything happens, we can go to our king and get his help. So what does God do? Well, amazingly, he is brilliant to them and gives them a king in verse 13. We saw that happen actually in uh, 
uh, last week in, uh, in uh, chapter uh, 11, uh, and we saw how uh, God uh, anointed Saul as uh, the king. Uh, and so that's what they did in verse, uh, chapter 11, verse 15. All the people went to Gilgal and made Saul king in the presence of the Lord. And so therefore, uh, Samuel says again in verse 13 that that's what God did. Uh, now here is the king you've chosen, the one you asked for. See, the Lord has set a king over you. Okay, God has still been brilliant to them and given them the help that they wanted. And then he continues to deliver them through their new king. Yes, if you were here last week and you saw chapter 12, there's this guy called Nahash. And he brought war on God's people and God's king beat them. And so Nahash got everybody looking to their new king, but the new king got them looking to God himself. In chapter 11, verse 13, he says, it is actually God who delivered them. But Saul said, no one will be put to death there, for this day the Lord has rescued Israel. So the new system isn't going to set aside the old system which worked really well with God delivering his people because God was acting righteously all the way through. That system didn't need changing. But if they do want to change the system, well, God will make sure that he is great in the new system as well. And so the king is incorporated into God's terrific kindness for his people as he makes the new king his deputy to work through him. So God is very, very righteous all the way through in all his dealings with his people. And I think that's probably why uh, Samuel talks about his own righteousness, why he had uh, got things right in verses 2 and 3. I think he's had to do that because it's very hard to say that God is righteous if the prophet is getting it wrong. But in verse 4, they confirm that, yes, Samuel himself is righteous. Now, therefore, Samuel is a good guy to tell you how righteous God is from verse 7 onwards. But notice something else about this God who gets things right. It means that he also acts when they get things wrong. And so there is thunder and rain at the time of the wheat harvest in verse 17, which wasn't usually what they had in their weather forecast that time of year. What's the message? The message is, if you follow local trends, that is a suicidal thing to do when you've got a God who is so gracious. The local trend is, let's have a king like everybody else. And more to the point, Samuel also refers to it, let's have the idols that everybody else has. And what uh, the thunder and the rain show is that it is not the Canaanite gods who people usually look to for that kind of intervention. It's not the Canaanite gods who are in control of things. God is. Look to him, not to uh, idols that can't rescue uh, in verse 21. And therefore, if we 
take this super slick line that some Christians can take, and we take ourselves sometimes, that, uh, um, you know, we'll nod at the idea that God is great, and that uh, he will turn around and help us when we cry for help. Yep, I'm all in favor of God doing that. If we play that kind of game with God and don't take him seriously, and live away from him, then let me tell you, he can get you crying for help in no time. He can put thunder and rain into your life any time he wants to get us back to crying mode where we seek him uh, and wish that we'd lived uh, trusting his righteousness. So it's a wonderful thing that God is a God who gives people an eyeful of his greatness and he does that even when they've got it wrong. See, God has been amazingly righteous all the way through history and you never actually understand how righteous God is unless you have history to see how he's acted in the past. But the second truth is less comfortable and that is that man is very sinful. Now, the big discovery that these people make when Samuel taught them their history is how verse 9 people of chapter 12 were forgetful of God. You can see that, can't you? But they forgot the Lord their God in verse 9. But the big lesson that they learned is that those longer people aren't the only ones. If you look at verse 19, they say, yep, that's exactly what we're doing as well. Uh, because we have added to all our other sins the evil of asking for a king. So our sin count is going up all the time, just the way theirs did. And so when Samuel has got good advice to give, it's really, hey guys, I don't think you can follow advice. Because there is a big chance that you're going to go and do all of this all over again. That's the flavor of what he's saying in the punchline in verse 25. You are likely to persist in doing evil. This is going to be you right to the end of your days. So I'm not going to give you good advice. The trouble with good advice is it always assumes that people are better than they are. And that's always a mistake because we are very sinful. And so therefore you see Samuel's big job in verse 23 is to pray for them. Not to give them good advice, but instead he says in verse 23, As for me, far be it from me that I should sin against the Lord by failing to pray for you. And you teach them what is good. But when you know that he's going to teach them what is good, you know that the way he does that, he teaches how God is good and right. That way, they'll trust him. So that, uh, for example, in verse 24, you notice this very interesting thing about what Samuel says about the fear of God. Be sure to fear the Lord and serve him faithfully with all your heart, consider what great things he has done for you. So you fear God by considering 
the great things he has done for you. That's a strange way to make people fear you. What is there to fear about a great God who does great things for you? The answer is, fear what you're going to be like without him. Fear what life will be like if you go away from this great God. Consider all the good things he has done and fear losing that. And what they'll do if they did that is they'll see how, uh, what it's like if they forget and God stops doing great things. What would it be like for them if their new king is uh, what they look to instead of God and they can't um, uh, forget God? Well, what will happen with the new king is if that's the case, he will keep making decisions in verse 25 that will sink the ship and you and your king will perish. Now, that's why Samuel uh, wants to pray for them. And that's what happened in the past. When they forgot God in verse 9, they were overpowered and defeated. That happened to the people when they got their new country under Moses and Joshua and all those people. And sadly the day would come when all that would happen all over again in verse 25. And they would be overpowered and defeated again and finally at their history, at the end of the Old Testament, they would be taken away captives into Assyria and Babylon. Their history would turn out to be prophecy as it happened all over again. Now, what are the things that we might learn from that this afternoon? Well, I'm hoping if you're new to Christianity, you will be lapping up what God is like. Because if you really are hungering to find out what God is like, you will see how great and right he is. If you don't lap up what God is right, you know what's going to happen? You might say with your head that you think God is good. But what will really happen in your heart is you take something good that God has made, something really good, maybe like family, and you start thinking, that is where all my joy comes from. An idol is something that we have as a substitute for God to which we look for our joy more than we look to God to give us uh, the great joy of himself. And so what happens when we do that is we go after idols or God's substitutes, good things that God has made. But what you've got to do is check the history. Have these idols ever delivered the goods? and deliver the happiness that they promised. So for example, it's very easy if you're a parent to look at children and to make your world revolve around them. They are the most precious, the most important things. They become all that you live for. Now, the trouble with that is if you make our children our idols, check the history. What's usually uh, likely to follow? Isn't it usually that the children turn out to be very spoiled and selfish? And isn't it equally true that the parents become very dependent on their children's approval? That becomes a slavery. 
And that's what idolatry always leads to. So if we aren't growing in our awareness of the wonderful greatness of God, we will love what Samuel calls useless idols in verse 21, which are unable to rescue us because they turn our lives into a prison instead. They don't rescue, they're in prison. Now, it's hard for us to bear. We are proud people, but it is important, I think, and really helpful if only we could latch on to this truth, that we are always very sinful as substituting God for something else in our lives. And it's only when we realize that that is actually how we are that we'll go crying out to God saying, please change this, please, please change this, otherwise I will never see how glorious you are the way that I should. So please don't think uh, that uh, I've gone away or just thinking that uh, you've gone away from this place with me giving you good advice. Uh, it's okay, you can do the text later, it's fine. Um, what we need to do is to actually say, God, help me, or I'll never see you are glorious. That is the big uh, concern that we want to do. If you want to see the greatness of God more and more, It'll come not by us doing good stuff. It'll come by us asking God to do good stuff to show us what he has done in the past. Okay? What happens if you're part of the church scene, you know a lot about church, you've gone to church lots before maybe. What's here for you? Well, if someone asks you, hey, is God great? My guess is you probably... Tell them, and you probably even get out your Bible and show them. But what would be worrying is if you couldn't match that with honesty and humility, saying how quickly you forget God, how your heart trusts other things more, and how you actually are like these people on page after page of the Bible, getting it wrong even though they understood what God was like. It's so easy, isn't it, to be satisfied with what we know and our kind of Bible, our kind of church experience. We can kind of trust that and lose sight that we are no different to the people who forget God. And we need to come back to seeing his greatness. Um, and uh, uh, to be rescued from that, uh, to see him and draw close to him again. So Samuel would want us to put the two together, the greatness of God that we understand in the Bible, but the deep humility that we hear in the Bible about what his people are like, and see yourself in those terms. But then lastly, what happens if you're someone who says, I'd hate this history to be a kind of prophecy about how I'm going to be for the rest of my life, forgetting God and in the end being rejected by him. I read what happened to God's people and I just don't want that future myself. The answer is very simply, cry out to God to rescue you. Now, Christian life is lived in prayer, asking God to deliver us from ourselves. It's not simply trusting ourselves to follow good advice. And so when Samuel's people realized that, 
what they did was to ask Samuel to pray for them. And he said he wasn't going to fail to pray for them in verse 23. But in the New Testament, our joy is that the Lord Jesus makes that promise that he will pray for us because he knows just how weak we are. It's a wonderful thing to have that promise as we go out into the new week. That in our weakness he's praying. It's good to know where those promises are based. So in Hebrews chapter 7 verse 25, it says, Jesus is able to save completely those who come to God through him because he always lives to intercede for them. You might think Jesus has died, he's gone to heaven, and uh, it's an armchair life for him uh, from now on. The answer is actually, uh, when Jesus got to heaven, he started a new job. And his new work, his life's work, he lives to pray for you, to keep you safe. That's how vulnerable you and I are, how dependent we are on uh, prayer. And in Romans chapter 8, verse 27, and again in verse 20, uh, 34, you find in verse 27, the Holy Spirit pray. And then in Romans 8, 34, you find again Jesus pray. Because uh, we're uh, weak. And you might say, gosh, is there any hope that we're going to be different? And the answer is yes, you will. Because the more you put in front of you the greatness of God, the more you will find yourself changing because all of us ultimately become like the person we admire the most. And as Samuel uh, says in verse 24, the key to fearing God and serving him faithfully is to keep considering what great things he has done for you. Don't lose that key. The key to fearing God and serving him is to consider what great things he has done for you. And the great things that God has done, no one's made up. It's there as solid history. And if we don't take that solid history to heart, then we'll persist in doing evil. And both us and what we treasure above God will perish. So let's pray that God will give us a heart to lean on him. And you see that in different ways, that should be the great response that we make this evening in the light of what he says. Let's pray that God will help us and then we'll take some questions after that. Our Father in heaven, we pray for your forgiveness that we forget your greatness so easily. And we thank you that part of your greatness is that things go badly wrong for us in order that we might cry and return to you. Please, Lord Jesus, forgive us and pray for us and keep putting your goodness in front of our eyes that we might live with you as the center of our joy. And we ask you to do this because you are so righteous and because you will not reject your people for the sake of your great name. And so therefore, in the name, that great name of Jesus, we make our prayer that we might keep 
uh, praying and that the Lord Jesus and the Holy Spirit might keep praying that we might become less like the nations around us and more like you for the glory of your name we pray Amen